0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity
1: titled The Bedrock of Personalized NF1 Care, Fundamentals of Managing NF1-Associated PNs and Other Tumors with Innovative Targeted Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com
0: forward slash RFJ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Good morning, everybody. We'll go ahead and get started. It's um, Thank you all for joining us. It's so nice to see some of you in person who I haven't gotten to see for a few years. So welcome, welcome. So just as a quick welcome, my name is Laura Klessy. I'm a pediatric neuro-oncologist at UT Southwestern here in Dallas Children's Health. And I'm lucky to be joined by Carlos Romo.
0: Hi, I'm Carlos Romo. I'm a neuro, neuro- at Johns Hopkins, and I take care of adult patients with NF.
1: So a couple of things we really wanna try to do today. I just wanna review NF1 to begin with, right? It's been a difficult couple of years as we've changed names and we've adjusted the diagnostic criteria. So we'll just go through some of that and then really talk much more in depth about how do you develop treatment plans with some of these targeted agents? How do you then decide who qualifies and who doesn't? And then really try to spotlight, we know all medicines have toxicities, how do we then monitor and deal with those? So I'm just gonna start with a very quick background. So over the past couple of years, there has been some diagnostic criteria changes and some naming differences. So all NF is now referred to as the neurofibromatosis, and this really breaks down into NF1, which you can see up here, and then the schwannomatosis. And these are distinguished basically by what gene is resulting in the this neurocutaneous disorder. And so the schwannomatoses are NF2 related if there's a genetic vari- pathologic variant in the NF2 gene or LZTR, SMARTB1, or 22Q related. And then there are clearly some schwannomatoses that we can identify the gene. Those are now known as schwannomatosis NOS. All of these are genetic tumor predisposition syndromes that put patients at the risk for the development of both benign and malignant tumors. And as we all know, there's no cure and there are very limited therapies for NF. And my poor fellows hear this all the time, but I do think it's incredibly important, especially for us as hematologists, oncologists, that we have to be able to identify NF. And there are several reasons for that. There's been very significant progress over the last several years in understanding the biology of NF, which has really opened up some therapeutic avenues that we didn't have before. There are consensus guidelines for screening, as well as kind of what to do with some of the complications. And then it's particularly in the setting of NF1, the whether or not and how we treat patients with tumors really does depend on whether or not NF1 is present. So just the quick numbers, and some of these numbers actually have changed pretty recently. So NF type one now is thought to be about one in 2,500 individuals. It means it affects over 120 Americans and two million people worldwide. So it means a fair number, 120 patients are diagnosed daily. This is equal across genders with a very worldwide distribution, and this makes it the most common tumor predisposition syndrome worldwide. And I think we forget, particularly in pediatrics, Dr. Romo not so much, but there is clearly a true malignancy risk that goes with NF1. That risk is somewhere between two and tenfold the general population, and means by age 50, you have a 20 to almost 40% chance of uh, developing a malignancy. The genetics of NF1, about half are newly diagnosed, half have a family history, and this is um, inherited in an autosomal dominant pattern but it does have complete penetrance. And I mean that a patient who has a pathologic variant in NF1 will have clinical signs of NF1. It's not skipping generations. What's made it quite difficult is that clinical variation is very wide even within families. So about half of patients will have a pretty mild course, but then a very significant percentage will have one that's much more difficult. So the diagnostic criteria was adjusted in 2021. So, And I've outlined it here. So a lot of it was very similar to before. Café lait macules, you had to have six or more, axillary or inguinal freckling, having either one plexiform or two cutaneous neurofibromas, the presence of an optic pathway glioma, two or more Lisch nodules, or as we bolded here, now the presence of choroid abnormalities, having some distinct bone lesions, and then added to this this new criteria was having a pathologic variant in the NF1 gene. Now, I do want to point out that variant is not sufficient for diagnosis. You have to have at least a second finding, and then a child of a parent who has NF1 only needs one of these criteria, so two or more of them all. About 70% of patients can be diagnosed even by age one and over 95 by age eight. So then when do you test? I feel like this comes up quite a lot in pediatrics. The majority of patients can be diagnosed by age 10 by the clinical criteria. Where is there a role for testing? You know, the testing in my lifetime has become incredibly accurate, but there are a number of variants within the NF gene. Remember this is a huge gene, and not all of them are known to be truly pathogenic. So there have been a number of them identified. If you've tested 7,000 plus patients, you've identified more than 3,000 germline variants. And the testing now is very accurate. The problem with it is, is just like we talked about, there are some known genotype-phenotype correlations in NF1, but not a ton, and so it's not really predictive by and large for families, and it can still be quite expensive. So I think the times where we really say it's helpful is somebody who's an unusual case, somebody who's young who may not meet that clinical criteria, but where you may need to do some therapy decisions. If you're more than 10 without a clear diagnosis, then it's quite helpful. And then there are some associated syndromes and families you're suspicious of that may be quite helpful for families. Why does NF1 get lead to tumors and all the other variants that we see? It's because it really acts as a negative regulator of the RAS signaling cascade in all neurocrest drive cells. So you get a growth signal from the outside that hits that receptor tyrosine kinase, activates this growth signaling pathway, and then NF1 basically is there to turn RAS signaling off. So NF1 is a classic tumor suppressor. If you're born with NF1, you have one pathologic variant, so you have half as much NF1 to turn this signaling off, and then basically you kick out the other copy, so you have loss of heterozygosity, and that leads to tumor formation. One of the fascinating things about NF, though, is there are clear time windows where you're really susceptible to the manifestations of NF. There's clearly some overlap, but in this review by David Gutman's group, you can see as you look at somebody over the course of their lifetime, right? The bone findings, plexiform neurofibromas, cafe macules, those are all younger childhood. Same is true with optic pathway gliomas whereas Dr. Roma's group much more has to deal with the, some of the true high grade malignancies. So there's clearly a role for kind of the microenvironment and time windows where people are really susceptible to this loss of heterozygosity and then tumor formation. Okay, I'm going to do a super quick hey everybody remember what the kind of clinical manifestations of NFR. So by far the most common are these café-au-lait macules which you can see in the pictures here below often the very first sign, often before age one, and are present in close to 90% of individuals with NF1. And the skin fold freckling, so axillary and inguinal freckling, which you can see in this top picture, often develops by about age five to seven and is in three quarters of patients with NF1. The ocular manifestations, these two are asymptomatic, but are very good for helping with diagnosis, even in young children. So Leish nodules are the ones we all know about, these benign hamartomas seen with slit lamps um, in the iris of the eye, no effect on vision. And added to the clinical criteria, these choroid abnormalities require some spectral OCT to really be seen, but are actually found in very high prevalence, probably even more than LISH nodules. And then the dermal neurofibromas. So these cutaneous and subcutaneous benign tumors that appear to increase in size and number during puberty and potentially pregnancy, although that's not always true. These are benign proliferations of the Schwann cells, but they can be disfiguring and can be quite morbid for patients with pain and itching. They really don't seem to carry a malignancy risk and surgical removal often can be quite useful a couple of other kind of quick updates on where we are in terms of kind of looking at some of these tumors, and then Dr. Romano, I'll go through much more kind of when do you decide to treat. So a lot of this we're gonna focus on plexiform neurofibromas, incredibly common in patients with NF1. So probably at least 50% of patients with NF1 will have these benign large masses associated with a group or plexus of nerves composed of Schwann cells, fibroblasts, mast cells that invade that help drive its proliferation and you get this positive feedback growth loop. They are highly infiltrative, can be quite disfiguring, and can be life-threatening. If you see my poor patient up here, all of this is plexiform neurofibroma with a pretty significant scoliosis curve as well. They can be visible on the skin, but they also can be deep, nodular, and not as visible. And we really think these are congenital, meaning you get that second hit early, and they grow over time. The second most common tumor that we see in patients with NF are CNS tumors. So about 20 to 30% of patients with NF1 will develop a glioma. Most of these are benign or low-grade gliomas. They are most commonly found either in the optic apparatus or in the brainstem. So these pictures up here show you an optic chiasm glioma, a brainstem glioma, and then one within the orbital tract. They tend to be slow, benign, but there is a clear risk of high-grade glioma development in patients with NF1, particularly in adulthood. Surgical resection for low-grade gliomas would be curative, but brainstem and optic apparatus are not places where surgical resection is really feasible. Patients with NF1 clearly are at higher risk than the general population, but they tend to do better overall. And really our field has shifted where we're treating less and less of these. One reason for that is, just like I mentioned before, there is a clear window of opportunity for the development of particularly the optic gliomas. So in this nice retrospective review by Mike Fisher's group at CHOP, they looked at the age where patients were diagnosed with an optic glioma. And you can see the vast majority of patients were diagnosed prior to the age of 10. Less than half of patients now we think require therapy. That peak age is really probably ages two to four. They're much less common after age eight and really quite rare prior to age one and less and rare in adulthood. Part of the reason our shift has come about treating these is MRI findings, response by MRI, and visual outcomes do not correlate at all. And so progression on MRI does not necessarily correlate with vision loss, nor does improvement with chemotherapy on MRI. And they clearly behave differently. Peter DeBlanc's group put together a really kind of a nice treatment decision paradigm for when you decide you need to treat. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to point out that it's very clear, I think, in the group we feel like visual acuity changes or visual field loss, particularly in a young child, is a clear indication that these need to be treated. But after that, it's a little bit harder. And I think you really do have to take into account are you getting a good eye exam? Even if there's progression on MRI, that doesn't necessarily mean that these need treatment. There are several non-tumor associated findings in someone with NF1. They tend to be nacrocephalic. That is not associated with tumor developmental or learning differences. Seizure disorder is more common, up to about 7% of patients with NF1. They are at risk for cardiovascular abnormalities, hypertension, early cardiac death, for reasons we still don't quite understand. They are clearly at risk for vasculopathies, so renal artery stenosis, moyamoya, and some cerebral vasculopathy, including vessel stenosis, so something definitely to watch for, and several endocrine abnormalities, short stature, precocious puberty. And then I think one of the most difficult to treat are these bone abnormalities. So bowing of the long bones, pseudoarthrosis, a break in those long bones that then doesn't heal. And then about 30% of patients will have scoliosis as well. And then for all of you who take care of patients with NF, clearly what affects them significantly in their life are some of the neurocognitive and social dysfunction. So this is easily half of patients with NF1. IQ being low is actually a smaller percentage, but they probably don't have IQ span as would the general population. They have very clear difficulty with executive functioning, have difficulty with some of this attention, working memory, being able to follow multiple tasks very high rate of attention and hyperactivity disorders. And if you look at kids with NF1 overall, about 70% of them are what we consider underachieving. There's also quite a high rate of some social dysfunction. So kids with NF1 are more likely to be socially isolated, teased, we did some bullying work. So much less likely to be well liked by their peers. And up to a third will have some aspect of autism spectrum disorder. So clearly will meet some of that criteria. So really impacts their day to day outcome. And then we've kind of mentioned this, but there is clear risk of malignancy with NF1. So we all think about malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors, which is probably about 10% of patients with NF1, but there are other malignancies, particularly in the adults, where we really do need to think. And that includes high-grade gliomas, pheochromocytomas, early breast cancer, and in our pediatric groups, JMMLs and rhabdomyosarcomas. So how do we screen them? So there was an updated pediatrics review about how to screen patients with NF1. Consensus clearly agrees on annual physicals, annual histories, including height, weight, blood pressure. Optic glioma assessments are annual by the ophthalmologist at least until eight and then probably every other year. MRI evaluations are clearly indicated for changes, precocious puberty, new seizure, but their role of screening as we all know is still pretty controversial just because of the shift away from being able to use MRI at progression as a clear indication for treatment. And then for plexiform neurofibromas, and I will say this has clearly changed in my lifetime. We used to say physical examination and we'd really look for signs and symptoms of progression. But now, given the potential therapies, we MRI much more consistently, and I think that has shifted over time. And then, it, particularly in pediatrics, careful assessment of development and neurocognitive and some formalized neurocognitive assessments are really helpful. So now we're gonna switch to really talk more about plexiform neurofibromas and kind of biology and how to treat. So just to give you a quick overview, and then I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Romo. Plexiforms, right, we said probably 50% of patients with NF1, we feel like you they're congenital. You may not recognize them initially in infancy, but they clearly grow most in young childhood. And so this graph over here shows you the change volumetrically in a plexiform graphed against the age of the patient. And you can see by far the most dramatic growth is in young childhood. And the graph below are individual plexiform neurofibromas looking at tumor size changes over time. You can see once you get to about age 20, the majority of them don't change. It's really more in young childhood that that happens. Now, plexiforms can be quite frustrating, right? Two-dimensional MRI doesn't show that volumetric change. Most of us don't have volumetrics readily accessible at our institution. And they can go through long periods of stability. And we'll talk a bit about this, but conventional chemotherapy, which makes us all sad as oncologists, has really not been successful. And radiation therapy really does not have a clear benefit and really puts patients at risk in this Tumor predisposition for disorder to um, true malignancies with almost a threefold higher rate. You can get serious complications from plexiform neurofibromas. They are benign tumors, but they clearly can cause both local and neuro- neuropathic pain. They can impair function, whether that's compression or infiltration of the nerve clearly can cause disfigurement and can be life-threatening if you have mechanical um, compression of the trachea, large blood vessels, spinal cord, and they carry a very clear risk of malignant degeneration. So how do you treat them? Well, I'm old enough to recognize that we don't need to treat them all, right? For years, we didn't have a therapy, and so we tended to watch the vast majority. But the decision to treat now, I think really depends on where it is what symptoms you have, whether or not you do think there's a potential for morbidity or mortality, and whether or not that tumor is growing or has some atypical features. So we're gonna spend the next couple of minutes talking about some cases and kind of ways or indications to treat. And then I'm gonna turn this over to Dr. Roma.
0: Thank you. So we're gonna start with a case and then hopefully answer some of the great questions that you're already submitting and I think Dr. Kleski already answered some of those questions, but we'll go back and answer more uh, if we haven't made a good, good, good job of answering them uh, during our talk. But let's talk about Andrew, who is eight years old and has NF1. He has been previously followed due to his NF and unknown plexiform neurofibroma in his neck, for which he already required surgery three years ago. He presented to our clinic with worsening respiratory distress while he was sleeping, Uh, This was affecting his energy during the daytime. He was staying uh, asleep during school days and things like that, and uh, was admitted to the hospital for further evaluation. While he was in the hospital, he had an MRI done that showed significant plexiform neurofibroma on both sides of the neck, as you can see here, with uh, nodules all over. And he also had some degree of scoliosis in the upper thoracic spine that is not well shown in this MR, but uh, trust me, there's something there and he had signs of a prior Chiari uh, malformation repair. When we looked back at his prior images, we saw that the dominant nodule within that big plexiform neurofibroma had demonstrated persistent growth over time and was probably the culprit of why he was struggling with his breathing. A PET-CT was uh, done and there was only minimal uptake in the plexiform neurofibroma, but we saw that it resulted in significant airway compression. Okay, so we wanted to make this a little bit of a conversation as well. And this MRI actually shows that thoracic scoliosis better, which as you can see is really significant. Laura, what, what do you think about this case?
1: So I think I would sure talk, so clearly all this plexiform is not surgically resectable. But boy, even with minimal uptake, these are a little worrisome and growing and clearly would cause um, airway compromise. I sure would push my surgeons, I think, to at least try to resect those if they felt it was feasible. Yeah.
0: And so in our practice, we sometimes obtain MRIs with diffusion-weighted sequences, which can also help in determining that cancerous transformation we probably would have ordered that as well. A PET CT can be helpful, but we tend not to do that if the tumor has already been biopsied or had surgery directly in the area of concern because the PET can be altered just because of the surgery and mislead us into thinking that this is a malignant tumor. But as you were saying, clearly this kid is symptomatic and there's a mass that's growing, so probably we need to do something about this. So surgery for plexiform neurofibromas is still the standard of care. Uh, we know that the smaller they are, if they are completely resected, and if they're in certain areas of the body, they have a better outcome. If they're not nodular, if they're diffuse, if they're large, if they're in the face, the neck, or certain other structures like the mediastinum, then it's gonna be much harder for the surgeons to obtain a gross total resection. However, partial resections can still help. There are of course complications associated with surgery and uh, this paper by Safi and all uh, cited a 32% rate of complications and you see the list of all the potential problems depending on again where the tumors are located, whether they're close to the central nervous system or not uh, brings a different level of complication. There is also the potential for progression after surgery even after gross total resection, but of course that's much more common if residual tumor was left behind, which is often the case. A good portion of these tumors, as we were seeing in this particular kid, are not amenable for gross total resection. And uh, depending on who you read, anywhere from 20 to almost 50% of the cases will have some degree of recurrence of those tumors. So the effect of age, younger kids actually tend to do worse than older children. If I was mentioning, there are certain areas of the body where the resections are a little bit more beneficial and have better outcomes, those include the extremities. If we go to the trunk, spine, and viscera, that's a little bit worse. And as I mentioned, head, neck, and face, plexiform neurofibromas are slightly harder to remove and of course, carry a higher risk of recurrence. And of course, if you just biopsy the tumor, that will increase your risk of them growing even more as if you were uh, to do a gross total resection. So the team thought that surgical uh, resection was gonna be beneficial because he was having struggles with sleeping and his breathing. So the nodule was resected, but of course, as you were mentioning, Laura, they couldn't resect the entire plexiform neurofibroma. He tolerated surgery well, and he was able to wear CPAP for night uh, to help with his uh, sleep apnea problems that he was having. So a follow-up MRI showed slow progression, but no dominant nodules causing symptoms. So what are the next steps Do we need additional surgery? Do we start chemotherapy? Traditional cytotoxic chemotherapy? Do we refer him for radiation therapy? Do we start a targeted treatment? And if so, what are our options? Any thoughts about that, Laura?
1: So I always ask my surgeons. I feel like you always have to ask them up front. I can tell you my surgeons would be like, no more. Um, But I always feel like it's at least worth the conversation. But I feel like in somebody who's clearly having progression, it's not surgically resectable. I think we have to go to more targeted therapy.
0: Yeah, yeah, especially because it seems like this kid is still having some problems and requiring CPAP. It's not like the Mm -hmm. surgery made him symptom free. Okay, Okay. so what are our options? There have been several studies looking to target the MAP kinase pathway, and you see a bunch of uh, agents here that have been tried in actual clinical studies with Different degrees of success. Uh, the only one that is FDA approved is selumetinib, which is a MEK one MEK two inhibitor. But there are other options that have been tried in different groups and by different um, groups, I should say. For example, trametinib, which is an, another MEK inhibitor, uh, was evaluated in pediatric patients with refractory tumors. And uh, we know that there are several studies. Some of them were looking at plexiform neurofibromas, which is what I'm going to focus on. Somewhere looking at optic pathway gliomas and other low-grade gliomas. But for plexiform neurofibromas, there are six studies uh, published that showed some degree of benefit from timetanib. Some of them, although, are uh, small case series. But the largest one was a phase 1-2-8 trial in kids that were aged one month to 18 years with medically significant, meaning causing symptoms, typically progressive tumors that were unresectable. The final results of this has not, have not been published, but at ASCO in 2018, there was an abstract that uh, gave an interim analysis of 26 patients, of which 46% achieved a partial response. Like with most MEK inhibitors, peronechia and a rash were the most common adverse effects, and one patient did not really tolerate the treatment and was uh, discontinued. So more to come about trametinib, but another option for kids uh, or adults. Uh, we also, also use it very frequently in adults with NF. Myrdamethanib is another uh, MEK inhibitor, and it was also studied in a group of patients, in this case, 19 patients ages 16 or older with a median age of uh, 32. Mostly they were symptomatic, so 90% of them had problems with pain or neurologic dysfunction or compression of other structures rather than tumor growth. And I say that because as we see below the rate of tumor stabilization or even shrinkage is lower than selomethanib, for example, at 42%. So only eight out of those 19 patients achieved some shrinkage. But it's important to note that not all of them were growing to start with. They were just causing symptoms. Um, Stable disease was achieved in 53% of patients, and only one patient met the criteria for disease progression, as you can see in that waterfall, waterfall plot there. The most common side effects were also acne form rash, fatigue, and GI symptoms, including nausea and vomiting. Binimethanib is another uh, MEK inhibitor. It is currently ongoing in a trial uh, that's a phase two open label multicenter study. So the final reports are not available yet, but some data has been reported on stratum two, which are kids age one through 17. It's still active, but not recruiting. It reported uh, 19 patients that were actually evaluable, and out of those, the median age was 12. 74% of them met the criteria for partial response. However, a good portion of them required dose reductions because of side effects. And then, selomethanib is the last MEK inhibitor in this list, and it, as I mentioned before, has been approved by the FDA in 2020 specifically for the use in uh, kids age two and older with plexiform neurofibromas. The phase two study, the SPRINT trial, was conducted in kids that were having either progressive or symptomatic and inoperable tumors. And the primary endpoint was evaluation of tumor shrinkage by volumetric analysis using MRI. As you can see in this Kaplan-Meier curve, the kids on salamethanib did much better than the natural history control group where their tumors either shrank or became stable. 68% of the kids uh, achieved a partial response which was defined as shrinkage of 20% or more of the tumors, again, by volumetric analysis. In addition to that, which I think is critically important to mention, is that not only did they see that the tumors decreased in size, but that the patients actually derived clinical benefit from that. And if you can see at the two uh, graphs, at the graph next uh, to the Kaplan-Meier, you can see that on the global impression of change score, they asked patients themselves and their parents how they thought their symptoms were doing other than pain. And the majority of them, 86% of the adults, the the parents I should say, mentioned that they at least had minimal improvement, but most of them had much improved symptoms or very much improved symptoms. And the kids were similar at 72% reporting clinical benefit with the use of selamethanib. Again, the skin rash, the GI symptoms come back with the MEK inhibitor class. Vomiting, diarrhea, nausea for GI, rash, and peronechia are the more common skin findings. We typically start, uh, in our practice, although not always the case, and not everyone does this, but we typically start prophylactic treatment for the skin rash. Is that something you do, Laura, as well?
1: Don't in my young kids, I do in my teenagers. Teenagers, yeah,
0: Um. yeah. So that includes either an oral antibiotic, such as doxycycline, creams, lotions, shampoo, things like that to help with the skin rash and prevent it from getting bad from the get-go. Increased CK levels is very, very common, and as long as they're asymptomatic and not causing renal problems on lab analysis, we typically just monitor them. But if they become symptomatic or cause renal uh, problems, then we start either dose reducing or holding the drug for a while. Okay, so 2020 approved by the FDA in kids over two, easy to get. Uh, This is the recommended dose, 25 milligrams per meter squared twice daily, typically on an empty stomach is preferred. Uh, There's a dose reduction for uh, kids with hepatic impairment. Selometinib is now being also studied in an adult population with the same characteristics as with the kids. That's people with NF1 and plexiform neurofibromas that are inoperable and symptomatic or progressive. And they also saw very similar with the preliminary results. These are not the final results, but the preliminary results have shown that most people, about 69% of them achieved at least partial response. Uh, stable disease in eight of those uh, reported patients there were no progressive disease, and a couple of the ones that were reported in this interim analysis um, were not available. It is also important to note, because I think there's a question here about the duration of treatment, that a lot of these kids or adults in this particular study did not have their maximum benefit within the first few cycles. Some of them had to wait for 10 to 12 cycles before they achieved their best benefit. So if you can tolerate the side effects, it's worth continuing the treatment until then to get additional uh, tumor shrinkage. Moving away from the MEK inhibitors into a much more dirty drug, cabosanthinib, we think in particular Axel and uh, maybe mer are the ones that we're targeting in plexiform neurofibromas, but in this study, uh, in pages, patients aged 16 or older with NF1, and again, the same criteria, plexiform neurofibromas that were symptomatic or progressive, carbosanthinib was used on a daily basis, not BIDS with selumetinib, And they saw that a good portion of the patients had some partial response. In this case, eight uh, patients, which is equivalent to 42%. 11 of the other ones had stable disease and none actually meet the criteria for progression, which would be a 20% or more increase in the size of their tumor. So as we were talking about before, not everyone needs to be treated. I recently saw a patient who came to us uh, for a second opinion and she had been started on a MEK inhibitor because her tumor was growing on an MRI without causing any symptoms or any problems, but uh, there was a concern of growth. I think sometimes we do that in people where we see that there are those paraspinal neurofibromas creeping into the spinal canal and there's impending neurologic damage to happen. If we see that there's a clear progression towards that and the patient is not eligible for surgical resection, maybe that's when I would consider starting a MEK inhibitor or one of the other drugs, uh, even if they're asymptomatic. However, you have to be thoughtful about that 10 to 12 month lag. So if the tumors are already compressing the spinal cord and causing symptoms, I would probably not use a MEK inhibitor or one of the other class of drugs, but refer them to neurosurgery for resection of that tumor. Pain is another indication. And like I said before, in the adult population, most of the tumors that were studied for Cabo actually were not growing, but were symptomatic. So symptoms are definitely uh, an indication for starting target therapy. Anything to add, Laura?
1: Uh, no, I think that's very true. I mean, I have conversations, I'm sure you do too, with families all the time who are anxious. I, my rule of thumb is you have to have one thing, basically, that your form is causing to lead me to really want to treat yeah. it, whether that's pain or morbidity of some kind.
0: I agree, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so following up with uh, Andrew, he was started on a me inhibitor after the resection that we spoke about and his, uh, we counsel the patient and the caregiver about the dosing, the safety, and expectations. Kids that are started on MEK inhibitors have to have based on monitoring with IXMs, echocardiogram, EKG, and lab tests to make sure that it's safe for them to start the drug. And then they're closely monitored in our clinics once they've started treatment for all the potential complications that can occur. And one year after starting treatment, he was able to stop using the CPAP at night, so his symptoms clearly improved, and his plexiform neurofibroma has uh, remained radiographically stable uh, with volumetric assessment. So he continues on treatment uh, three years later with this medication. And I think one of the questions that's very interesting here uh, that someone submitted is, how long do we actually treat these patients? Because parents will ask us, Patients will ask us, is it a three month thing or a 12 month thing? How long are we looking into treatment?
1: And I I think it's a very good question. So you, you mentioned sometimes it takes eight to 10 months to see an effect. I ask families when they agree to do a MEK inhibitor unless there are toxicities to give me a year of therapy to see if we get benefit. And then I have the discussion at two years, because everybody reads the SPRINT trial, right? And they came off drug. But, um, but I'm very anxious about stopping particularly young kids who had morbidity. And I think this graph shows you very clearly why. So here's where solumetinib was started in this patient. They had to hold it because of the cardiac toxicity and clearly had regrowth. And in my young kids in particular, I see clear growth if we stop it too. So I have been trying, I do have some families who feel like the burden of coming back and forth is too hard and so we will trial off, but most families I have asked to try to stay on. And I think with the new published data about long-term use, I actually have more to be able to tell families that that's reasonable. So just published was a five-year additional follow-up They continued to see kind of durable partial response in 70% of patients with shrinkage and improvement in symptoms and there were no new safety signals in this longer term follow up. So I really have asked patients. Now I think yours may be different depending because I'm in much more of a growth phase. What do you guys do? Uh,
0: We do the same. I think it's interesting and this is an example but there have been several cases of this pattern where the tumor not only grows, but grows back to the same pattern of growth that it had before. And then once you start uh, treatment, whether it's sedimentative or something else, they tend to decrease in size again to the same rate of decrease that they had. So it's interesting that the tumors are really starved uh, when when we use the MEK inhibitors or cabo, for example. So we usually stay on it as long as, uh, as it's tolerated and um, patients can take it. One thing that we did not address is uh, do we know if MEC inhibition or cabo are preventing cancer?
1: No, and I think that's a real question, right? Um, so the NICE consensus guidelines said very clearly, we don't know if it's preventative, and actually there are case reports of patients developing malignancy on a MEK inhibitor clearly not as effective for some of these atypical lesions. So I do not tell families, I think that this is a way to avoid malignancy. I think it is very specific in this setting.
0: And the other question might be, well, if we know that there's malignancy because a biopsy was done, is there any indication for these drugs in the setting of MPNST, which we also, I don't think we addressed.
1: No, and we will talk about that a little bit more. As a single agent, I think the answer is no. There have been a couple trials who have looked at that. In combination, there may be, but as a single agent, I think the answer is clearly no. I completely agree. Okay. Yeah, so I think here kind of our takeaway points for plexiforms are there are therapies, something we didn't have before, whether that's MEK inhibitors or some of these multi-tyrosine kinase inhibitors that clearly have benefit, can result in shrinkage of the plexiform and clear improvement in function. They do not make plexiforms resolve. And I think this is hard, we all know, for families to come to grips with that, that it's gonna get better, but it's not necessarily gonna go away. And the effects seem to be only really while you're taking drug, particularly in young childhood. And so I do think you have to get families into the mindset of a long time. And at the moment, solumetinib is the only one that's FDA approved, but all the other drugs we really talked about are in the setting of clinical trials or off-label use.
0: And we're gonna continue to talk about actual MPNST management. So those plexiform neurofibromas have turned malignant. So we spoke about a case of, a well this is a new case, of a three-year-old with an enlarged left lower extremity that they noted areas of hyperpigmentation in the leg, as well as more than 10 lait macules in a known family history of NF1. Had initial imaging and followed closely by his orthopedic surgeon. And over the following five years, he had slow increase in the, or she had slow increase in the length of discrepancy and decreased ability to bend both her knee and hip. So MRI uh, remained overall stable uh, to slightly worse. So, Does this plexiform require therapy or not? There hasn't been much of a radiographic progression, but there is some loss of functionality here. No significant pain, but clearly impacting her daily activities. And surgical resection was not meant to be feasible due to the large extent of this plexiform neurofibroma that was affecting a good portion of her leg. Um, So family opted to go on a clinical trial, but after two cycles on medication, decided to withdraw due to side effects. Uh, required proximal tibial and fibular uh, um, surgery to fix the, like, the discre- discrepancy. And we thought we should start MEK inhibition at age 13, which improved her orthopedic function and continued uh, on drug for three years. However, at age 17, she presented to the clinic with new pain in her right uh, posterior, uh, posterior leg and a new mass that she was able to palpate. She noted to have significant changes in the texture of her skin over the uh, mass, and uh, but there weren't any significant changes on her exam. So we got an MRI and we saw that within that diffuse plexiform neurofibroma, there was now what we call a distinct nodular lesion right in this area here. So she had a PET scan and the PET scan did show some avidity as was shown here again, which was, Definitely concerning. So, a biopsy was recommended. Uh, and before moving forward with the, the, the discussion about the surgical approaches, uh, I wanted to ask when should we get a biopsy in plexiforms?
1: I think it's a good question. And this comes up at the case conferences um, pretty frequently because that's terrifying, right? That lesion is texture change, new pain, and really pet avid it probably needs to come out um, regardless. I I think part of often while while we will biopsy is some of these atypicals don't require maybe the same surgical resection that a true sarcoma does. And this one was felt that it would probably likely lead to a neurological deficit. And so I think for both the family and the surgeon to know whether or not they needed to be that aggressive, a biopsy is totally reasonable, but I sure would be anxious to leave it in regardless. I don't know, what do you think?
0: I totally agree. I think uh, there is a role for biopsying this plexiform neurofibromas. Even if there's not a lot of pediability Uh, If we are concerned that they're not quite MPNST, but potentially an atypical neurofibroma or this new entity called an atypical neurofibromatosis neoplasm of of undetermined biologic potential, or ANABUB, that they probably should come out because those are underway to becoming MPNST. We don't know when that's gonna happen, and once it happens, we could find it too late where there's already metastases. So even if it's one of those pre-malignant tumors, I I agree with you, I probably ask our colleagues in neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery or uh, some oncologic surgeon to take care of this as quickly as possible. So of course, if you do a biopsy, there's always different potential responses, one is that, or or results, one is that it could be still a benign plexiform neurofibroma, in which case I would still feel anxious about that tumor because of the symptoms, the growth, and, and the way it looked on imaging. It could be an atypical uh, PN or the anabope that I just mentioned, but if it's a low-grade MPNST or a high-grade MPNST, that changes things, especially if it's a high-grade MPNST. And as we were discussing before, the reason for obtaining the biopsy is to confirm the diagnosis so that it can inform the, op- the surgical approach. You don't want to do an overly aggressive surgery that will lead to loss of function for a premalignant tumor. Whereas if you've confirmed that this is an MPNST, surgeons will probably want to get some white margins to avoid uh, or improve overall survival. And um, we know that the neurofibromas, we've discussed this before, result as a loss of the second NF1 allele as a second hit. And there are potential other driver mutations, some of which are listed here, with CDKN2A, uh, TP53 and SUS12 being probably the more common ones we see although ATRX is showing up as a a very high uh, frequent mutation that we also see. Surgery continues to be, as with plexiform neurofibromas, in mpn the current cornerstone of treatment. And, however, most cases, as with uh, the plexiform benign tumors, they are, in many cases, not completely resected. so an area, for example, where I would not necessarily recommend the biopsy because it wouldn't change too much the surgery would be, for example, in a kid with a mass in the chest in the mediastinum where there's no way they could get margins because otherwise they would be nicking the heart, the blood vessels and things like that. So maybe in that case, if I'm concerned, I would just ask for the safest resection possible. Despite the curative intent of surgery, overall survival remains poor with only about 50 to 66% of kids surviving past five years. And though kids have a better outcome uh, than adults as well, uh, we see that it happens at any age. So for radiation therapy, we had mentioned that in plexiform neurofibromas benign tumors, there's really not a well-defined role of radiation. In MPNST, there is a more established role for Radiation, especially in tumors that are not gross totally resected, and especially in tumors that are five centimeters in size or larger. Those are common doses that are used for radiation therapy. We already spoke about a little bit of a chemotherapy not being very effective with limited role, but it's still used, and various combinations of those medications, including vincristin, cyclophosphamide, ifosphamide, doxorubicin, and ad- adactinomycin, have been used in different combinations. One of the studies that we cite the most when we're treating our patients is SARC-006, which was a phase two trial using sporadic, um, for sporadic and NF1 associated chemotherapy naive and PNSTs. And the patients with NF received four cycles of neoadjuvant therapy. Their response was evaluated using a PET NMR to look for metastatic disease. And if there wasn't any metastatic disease, they usually underwent local control with surgery followed by radiation. The order of how you do this really does not seem to be very uh, significantly affect the outcome. So sometimes we will radiate patients before surgery, but typically surgeons prefer to have an intact field and only do post-op radiation. Following the surgery, patients recover and then they continue with typically an additional four cycles following IA i.e. combination. So most of the NF cases had some shrinkage after four cycles as well. Uh, We saw the same similar results in sporadic cases. However, in many cases, especially in recurrence, we recommend trying a clinical trial. And there are a few clinical trials that are out there that are available for adults and children with NF and sporadic and PNSTs as well. One of them is the use of selamethanib and we spoke about this not as monotherapy but in combination with other chemotherapy agents. This is one of them, SARC-031. Uh, There's another one at our institution where we're trying to use nivolumab and ipilimumab as neoadjuvant treatments prior to any resection uh, in kids and then that's followed by standard therapy. So we started with ipinevo and then we followed typically the SARC-006 protocol surgery, radiation, and additional cycles of chemo if tolerated. This is currently recruiting a patient, so there's no reports uh, right now of, of efficacy yet, but stay tuned and, and hopefully we'll have some good, good outcomes. And with that, we'd like to finish our official talk, but open the floor for questions.
1: So one question I thought was great, um, in the setting of the first case with the patient who had um, the neck, where we did a PET CT um, scan. One of the questions was, do you get PETs up front before you start a therapy? I do not in pediatrics. I'm actually quite worried about the radiation dose with a PET CT. I only do if there's something worrisome. So that patient had a rapidly growing nodule with new airway compression, so I was anxious about that. Do you guys do anything different?
0: No, I I agree with you. In in our institution, we mostly use MRI rather than PET, and most of those MRIs include, as I mentioned before, uh, uh, diffusion-weighted sequences, and we look at ADC values to see if there's any signs of concerns. If there's restricted diffusion, we get more concerned, and we typically move from there to biopsy, although in some cases, we do order PET scans as well.
1: And do you guys use contrast? We do not.
0: It's not necessary, and okay. I think more and more uh, we are leaning towards not using contrast for clinical practice. We typically do use contrast in most cases. However, we're currently having we're uh, currently doing a natural history study of distinct nodular lesions, and we're not using M, uh, contrast in that whole body MRI.
1: Okay, perfect. Um- One of the other questions was um, on MEC inhibition, how often do you get MRIs in the absence of new symptoms or visible growth? Every three months forever? I do not. Um, now, I have lots of little kids on it who, I mean, God love them, cannot lay still even for a non contrasted MRI. So I routinely do every six months for the first year, and then I'll often go to a year um, just in terms. Now, I have families who want it more frequently, but I'm not doing it every three months.
0: Yeah, we're not either. I think the reason for getting them a little bit more frequently were, for example, if I was treating a paraspinal tumor that was already causing some degree of cord compression, maybe I'd want. keep a closer eye on that tumor but otherwise i agree anywhere from three to six months would be good
1: and then the next question was um frequency of monitoring in our practice for aes labs echoes ophthalmology for those who are on long-term MEC. i once you've been on for over a year i do every six months Um, and so and i've found routinely that helps with my compliance with families Um, and so i'm not doing more frequent after the first year the first year i'm still doing every three
0: Yeah, I I think that's the FDA label recommendation, Mm -hmm. so I think we we stick with that as well. With uh, echocardiograms every three months, we get ophthalmologic examinations every six months. and labs, depending on where they are, as I said before, CPK elevation is very common. Sometimes we have to look at them a little bit more closely, but if they're doing pretty well, uh, maybe once a month. Good,
1: perfect, okay. And then the next question is how you give solumetinib to patients who cannot swallow capsules. Oh my god, this is like the bane of my existence. And I've already harshed Alexion on about it again, poor people. Um, it's hard. And I think um, I am lucky I'm at a big institution with Child Life who pills swallowed teaches um, out the wazoo. But it's hard. And there's not another way. Um, I will say. Off-label, we do use a fair amount of Tremetinib in Texas because there is a compassionate use program that actually has just ended, though, and so I think it's going to be harder to get the little kids um, treatment, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Until there's a sprinkle formulation, which hopefully is coming.
0: I usually don't have that problem with adults.
2: <laughs> you don't have to fill teach.
1: No. <laughs> so.
2: Yes, please. Hi. Thanks for that um, excellent talk. Um. I've been using selometinib on my patients, and the problem I've struggled with, which is um, a little unusual, is hyperphosphatemia. Um, I had an 18-year-old with um, really big tumors in the mediastinum. They had resected it so much that the neurosurgeons finally sent him to me. And once I start selometinib, his phosphate goes through the roof. I give him foslo I give him ev- nothing brings it down unless I stop the drug, reduce the dose, give it once a day, we had to take him off the drug. I have another patient now, I still have the same problem with from time to time, they develop hyperphosphatemia i have to stop the drug so because of the hold even though she's been on it for over a year she's now having some progression so i tried to talk to the drug company and they were like that's a little unusual so i was wondering in your experience um have you had problems with hyperphosphatemia and how do you deal with it
1: i have not do you i haven't, see either. It? I haven't um, either we
0: check for it but um
1: so that's a great, it's a great question because I have not seen it either. Um, and so I haven't had to deal with it. Um, and two dose reductions, you still have it? Oh, that's miserable. Yeah, I do not have a good answer for you because I have not seen it.
0: Have okay. you tried a different MEK inhibitor?
1: What would you recommend?
0: Uh, p- probably one of the one we more commonly use is trametinib, but meridomethanib is another option. Um, you said he's 18, so mm-hmm. they would be able to even if they were younger, meridometanib, trimetanib, yeah, or CABO. Um
1: Another question on here is length of therapy for solumetinib and optic gliomas. Um, a little different than plexiforms in my experience. I have done two years and have not seen the progression for the majority of patients. It's a much smaller minority, and then I have put that smaller minority back on if need be. I think some of that may be that window of opportunity, right, where they're likely to grow and then settle out as they get a little bit older, unlike the plexiforms, which I think are more likely to continue growing. And so, so I have been able to stop most of my patients at two years. You probably do use it less for that.
0: Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I don't typically see kids or adults with um, optic pathway biomas that are causing symptoms. There's. A Another good question here. Uh, when lesion was, is found on a scan on an asymptomatic patient, how do you approach scanning interval once they are referred to you?
1: Oh my God, this is the bane of my existence. I've run the NF clinic here for like 15, 20 years and still people in my institution do screening MRIs. Kills me. Um, I tend to do what we do in neuro-oncology. I do three months twice, six months twice, and then go to once a year. I don't know what you guys do.
0: Yeah, so it depends. I think if the patient is uh, seeing some progression of their tumor, even if it's not causing symptoms, I would probably scan them a little bit more frequently. If the patient tells you it's been there and it's been like that for six years, I may not even scan them again Mm -hmm. unless there's some progression because they can feel the tumor growing or there's some symptoms.
1: Agreed, I think that's very true. If it's been there for a while.
0: And I think that was a composite question about also what do you do, Uh, the question disappeared, but um, do you scan the brain just, to scan it in, in kids,
1: I do not. I'm a true believer in not doing screening MRIs, but this is what I run into even at my own institution where people screen quite a lot. So I do follow a fair number of optic gliomas that I never treat. Um, but I do not, we we have followed the recommendations of ophthalmology and then for any clinical symptom do MRIs from there.
0: Yeah, we, we see a lot of um, the FOSI, the focus, mm-hmm. focal areas of signal abnormalities or intensities or the UBOs, and we also don't follow them necessarily, but we do neurologic exams periodically at least once a year to make sure that there's nothing there. Perfect.
1: Um, I think there was a question about long-term therapy. What's our experience uh, and duration of therapy? I I think as we mentioned, if it's a young patient on a plexiform, I try to keep them on as long as the family will tolerate. Um, and And so I have had some patients on for, five, seven years at this point. And I think now with the publication of the long-term data, there's actually clear safety data to be able to do that. Yeah.
0: How do you address skeletal manifestations of NF?
1: So skeletal, obviously, a fair amount in pediatrics we see. Um, we do not do screening x-rays or MRIs. We do physical exam. And then we routinely screen for vitamin D and the calcium deficiencies. I'm lucky I'm next door to a Scottish Rite Hospital for the tibial dysplasia and Boeing. Um, But we've really tried to kind of let kids live and then kind of monitor from there. So there is, I will put a plug in, there is a big move because bone is so understudied in NF to really try to understand more what we can do because adults clearly have lower bone mineral densities. Kids are probably more at risk for fracture. There's a clear bone phenotype that we don't quite understand the biology. So there will be a big natural history study, hopefully opening in the next year or two, to really try to get at what is the true bone phenotype, how often does it impact life, and then what can we do from there.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, Thanks, everybody.
0: Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerviewcom forward slash RFJ860.
2: This activity is supported by an educational grant from Alexion Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated.